0: Grab your trowel and a cup of coffee, you're listening to Archeo Café. I'm your host, Otis Crandell. Welcome to another episode of Archeo Café. I'm Otis, and today I'm talking with Gregoire Van Havre, professor of archaeology at Universidade Federal do Piauí in Terezina, Brazil.
1: Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation.
0: Why and when did you decide to become an archaeologist?
1: Well, I think my first contact with archaeology was uh, as a teenager. As I recall, I didn't quite like Boy Scouting and my mother told me to choose another summer activity. So I found uh, an association in Belgium uh, organizing uh, archaeology camps. Uh, It was during two weeks, uh, in July and, uh, we were just digging every day, learning to dig, learning to open digs and, uh, using archaeology troubles and things like that. Then I went to study, uh, ancient history and I've been working, uh, on Roman Britain. So most of my material was, uh, archaeological. Um, I studied from uh, on historical point of view, but uh, all the material was uh, archaeological from epigraphic to uh, urban plants and things like that. But I really went to archaeology when I came to Brazil, uh, where I made my, my PhD. And there I really turned into an archaeologist. What is the main focus of your
0: research now?
1: Where well, my PhD was about uh, rock art uh, in the state of Bahia, and that's that's been my uh, my first focus as an archaeologist here in Brazil. Um And then as a professor, I had to learn to work with a bit of everything. So uh now my focus is uh, uh, going to computers. And how um, digital archaeology can be used on the field and in research in, uh, with Brazilian contexts. What are some of the places that you've worked
0: or excavated before?
1: Well, I've been mostly excavating in Brazil, in the northeastern region, um, and that means uh, quite a lot of different settings uh, from. Uh, Colonial Portuguese colonial era or, or Dutch, uh, colonial era, uh, to Paleo-Indian and all the prehistoric, uh, contexts from rock shelters to, to open area. But most of my work has been, uh, taken place in the region, uh, called the Chapa de Diamantina, uh, in the state of Bahia that are, um, really large sandstone outcrops. They make a a national park there, where many, many rock shelters are painted or or, or engraved. And that's mostly where I've been working, uh, digging and prospecting new sites.
0: What would you say is the most interesting place that you've done fieldwork?
1: Well, rock shelters are quite interesting, uh, not just because uh, um, you're excavating um, places that as have not been inhabited uh, as far as we know, uh, not constantly inhabited, but places that have been used for uh, many different uh, functions, could it be uh, hunting or, or, or just painting. And also because rock shelters are, are really particular, uh, places that you can feel how the environment is changing as you're inside the shelter and outside it. They create a, a specific, uh, ambient, uh, where it's really nice to dig. In fact, because despite the heat, uh, below the shelter, you, you're quite, um, you're quite okay. <laughs> so these rock shelters are, are, are really um interesting places to dig. Um they're also interesting because uh they are um shot contexts in the sense that um very few people go in them and uh you really have access to occupations that have been sealed out uh for quite a long time. So I would say that these uh, uh these places uh that we found we find in in many different states in northeastern Brazil I and mean, all Brazil in fact be it the Serra da Capivara in the Piauí, in the state of Piauí or the Chapada Diamantina in the state of Bahia they are really curious and really fascinating uh, places to dig. What are some of the most interesting discoveries that you've made? Well, many, many in fact. It's difficult to pinpoint one specific discovery, but Brazilian archeology uh, um, or archeology span in Brazil is really an interesting uh, area because We don't know anything about ancient occupations of the country. We have a few dates, a few datings, a few few uh, specific contexts that we know better. But for the most part, we don't know, we don't have a clue about who was here, how many of them were here, what they were doing, how they were living. So nearly every single flint, Every single uh pot every everything is a new discovery, but as an archaeologist working with rock art uh I think that the thing that was most impressive to me is a uh, specific paint, painting uh that we've been uh identifying in northeast Brazil. There have been a lot of work around uh traditions uh that are stylistic typologies and one of these traditions is uh, characterized by emblematic figures that are specific compositions that we can find on very different contexts uh, sometimes with hundreds of kilometers between them some of these emblematic figures are small but some of them are really, really, really complex and enormous. One of these we find in both Piauí and Bahía states is made of, of three elements. Uh, we have uh, animals at the center of the scene, we have individuals uh, around the animal, and in front of them, we have something like a geometric design that looks like a fence or a wall or something. And this one is so different that at first uh, we all thought, no, it's a separate design, it's another painting. But as we've been prospecting and studying more and more, we found out that all three elements were just one single painting. And this painting that we find on Ten or twenty uh, in the Chapada Diamantina. We have like five or six in the Serra da Capivara in the Piauí state. That is 300 kilometers, and we recently found one, one single of them in the Cerrado region. That is about a thousand kilometers from there, and it's the exact same composition. So what we we have is uh well it's really hard to think that this has been made uh randomly or that someone uh, the auto was travelling or in the three regions so we necessarily have uh a group of people sharing enough cultural material to paint the very same design complex design in three different regions and that makes us question who were they how how did they do that what kind of society was uh, uh, there to make to make it possible that is fascinating
0: about when was this
1: uh, the paintings? Yes. Well, we don't really, we don't know the exact dating of the paintings because it's always, uh, very difficult to, to, to date, uh, a rock art. Uh, but from, um, the context, uh, from digging we have made in, in, uh, in these sites, it's at least 3,000 years old, at least.
0: Could you tell us a bit more about the scenes? What else was in them? What were the common characteristics or how much they varied?
1: Well, the, the animals uh, are, can be interchanged. Uh, most, uh, most of them are deer, But we have some examples of uh, Rhea Americana, which is a kind of local ostrich, uh, smaller one. Um and in other cases uh there are some other animals, other mammals we don't we can't really identify. Um generally it's just one single animal, but in a few cases uh we have more than one. And uh sometimes in the case of deals it's easier because you can ad- identify males and females uh in one of these cases uh it's uh female with with a phone but it's as i recall the only example of two animals yeah. um around the animals we have these uh human depicted and uh many of them are carrying weapons or objects at least um these weapons can be uh, speed throwers or, or some mazes or things like that but that we can't necessarily identify. Uh, their number can vary too, it can be 6 to 10. Um, what is the most uh, recurrent is the geomet- geometric design in front of all of them, um, which can vary in size, but not really in shape, so it's always like a grid or a fence or fence, something something like that.
0: Have there been some interpretations about what the geometric
1: object might be or what it probably is well um the we mostly see it as a fence or 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 that is a as a device made to stop uh the animal. Um, Now that makes the whole scene curious because it seems to indicate that the the purpose was not immediate killing of the animal. Um, If you try to catch or to stop an animal, you don't mean to kill it immediately at least. Um, And as we have seen examples of uh, a female with phones, uh it makes us feel that uh it's not really hunting scenes but more like um herd control scenes. Uh that is you it's a bit difficult to explain uh but um there are we, we know other uh butchering scenes where you see clearly that, uh, what is depicted is the execution of the animal. Uh, in this case, there is no direct contact between humans and the animals. Uh, they're not even throwing sticks of any or anything at the animals. So it really seems to be like uh, circling the animal and keeping it alive. So, um, As we have also a quite large number of these scenes, uh, it seems to point to to something like herd control. Uh, That is not really domestication, but uh, that is managing uh, uh, the animal population. Is there archaeological evidence that suggests
0: that they might have been keeping the animals with them for a while?
1: Well, not he, not not really here uh, uh at least not now we uh, don't know any um any uh, remain of of, of fences or, or or nets uh we do know that people were um uh using uh Fibers to, 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 to make hammocks and things like that at the same time. So it was possible, but we don't have the evidence of it. So that's one of the problems with rock art. We've been conjecturing a lot. Uh, but that's helped us to, um, maybe try to find some answer for that
0: were these people primarily sedentary
1: or seasonally sedentary or nomadic well um thanks to the 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 uh the style they've been using to 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 make paintings at okay, least that style uh it is highly figurative um we have some scenes uh that are depicting uh individuals and animals in the very same way as these uh, uh specific scenes uh that uh show kind of housing. Uh we don't know how uh permanent it was, but they were using houses or huts or anything that uh shelters. Uh so we probably have uh um I wouldn't say sedentary, but, uh, semi-sedentary a uh, seasonal sedentary, uh, people, um, occupying these sites, these work shelters.
0: Were they primarily hunter-gatherers?
1: Well, uh, from the diggings, we have, um, excavated a lot of, uh, lithic material, uh, and, a lot of flakes, uh, uh, terminal flakes, indicating that uh, the rock shelters were also used for uh, uh, um, refurbishing your weapons or your tools. I see. Were they workshops? Not really workshops, because we don't have the evidence of the whole uh, uh, reduction process, uh, the whole chain opératoire. But, uh, um, what we have is really the, the, the last, uh, the last steps where you already have your, uh, uh, your instrument, uh, your tool and you have to, to, to make it sharper. Um, so it probably indicates that hunting was important. Uh, but at the same time, we have some depictions of, of, uh, uh, plants. So we know that if they are the same people, of course, uh, they were also uh, gathering plants. What else do we know about these people who painted the scenes? Well, mostly nothing. (laughs) Um, We still know nothing about them. Um, Mostly because we're not sure how to associate them with uh, or the archaeological contexts, be lytic or, or even ceramic. Uh, what we have are, are the great lines, uh, are, are problematic because most of them are imported from, from uh, the old world or from, from North America, uh, where they say that uh, as people get sedentary, they also abandon uh, making rock art. But it's not necessarily true for Brazil. So we are guided by these great lines, but we have to keep in mind that, uh, they are from completely different contexts. So we have to create new lines, uh, adapted for what we find here. And, uh, we need more archaeology for that. Uh, we desperately need more archaeology. What aspect of your work do you think has, have, or
0: will have the most impact on future research?
1: Well, um, as I said before, uh, uh, I've been uh, working on the interface between computers and uh, uh, archaeology, be it uh, on the field or in laboratories or in research in general. Um, I believe that uh, it is uh, um, I believe that computers are going to be more and more important in all aspects of archaeological work Um, and that means that uh, we have to we have ourselves to learn to use them and we have to teach how to use them Uh, we have to make sure that next generations of archaeologists are able to use computers not just like typing machines but as tools that can make them uh to uh tree to process large um large amounts of data. As we can hope that Brazilian archaeology is going to to, to, to grow, it is going to produce more and more data. And we already have this uh, situation uh, with CRM uh, contract archaeology that has been producing a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of data. And uh, mostly no research has been made uh, on it. So uh, we can't just anymore uh, make archaeology as it was in the past where you had a table full of material and you can, you could just study uh nowadays it's not just one table it's uh, it's like hundreds of tables of material uh so we have to use new forms new methods and among these new methods i think computers are, are, are can be a great help i think that now
0: the vast majority of archaeology is crm archaeology uh, cultural resource management, archaeology. When there's a, a a large project where it's for construction, for a, a hydroelectric dam, for putting through a new highway, a new suburb, and I think that a lot of the archaeological sites now, probably the vast majority, are found through these type of projects, and they're they're done differently than than a research excavation or a research field project might be but they are generating a lot of data, and I think that this is a resource that that archaeologists could make use of, depending on how it's recorded. Uh, I don't know if this is the same everywhere, but in a lot of places they generate large reports, and hopefully there's a lot of data, which then an academic archaeologist or a student or someone else interested could potentially use this data, but as you say, we need to use the computer. This is not something that, you know, one human brain can encompass and think about. We need to be looking at the big picture. And for that, you need something that can process large amounts of data in a fast time altogether. Absolutely. Do you think that there's going to be a large move into this, into using computers to study this? This data that's being generated by the crm companies
1: yeah and it's not just about uh, analyzing material uh, per se uh, think about spatial analysis uh, things that we cannot see we cannot put it on a, on a table but they are really super important tools uh, we have to be able to look at the spatial distribution of artefacts if we want to understand how people were living. And that really you can't put on a table or you have to make a map, but then you have to use GIS to make your map. Uh, So anyway, uh, be it through material analysis or any other uh, aspect, I think computers are really one of the one of the keys that uh, we have to teach younger younger archaeologists to use and they have to understand not just uh, as uh, they have to understand how they how they work not just as uh, uh, not just use it they have to understand how it works
0: at the Universidad de Federal, de POE, do the students there do a lot of computer work when they're learning archaeology?
1: Well I try to but not, honestly not, not not enough. Um in most of Brazilian universities uh most of the, 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 the most of Brazilian universities now offer uh, uh, some kind of uh computer courses for archaeologists. Uh mostly they are GIS courses. Uh, but some university have statistics and, uh, and more general computer knowledge courses. Uh, so, uh, it's really growing, uh, but it's still not really enough. And we have the, the other problem of, uh, uh, Brazilian society that, uh, uh, many students don't have access to computers. Um well, as an example, we have now, we're in the middle of a pandemic uh of a pandemic and and many of our students uh, had to go home um and now the university is uh trying to to uh build up some kind of uh um remote uh teaching. But uh one of the problems, one of the main problems is that uh most many of us of our students don't have computers to access remotely uh any of these solutions. Um and we are not just talking of ten or fifteen students, it's like forty percent of them. Uh so it's really a problem, and not just a problem of teaching, it's a problem of uh, the whole society too.
0: What do you think is the background of most of the students at your university? You're located in the northeast part of Brazil. Um, Teresina, is a medium-sized city. Mm-hmm. What proportion of your students do you think come from the city or come from the rural area uh, throughout the state?
1: I would say uh, half and half. Um, half of them are from Teresino or just around and half of them are from the countryside that can be a thousand kilometers away or even from other states. We have students from the neighboring states of Sierra and Maranil and um, thanks to uh, exchange programs uh, we have also we also have students from other states like São Paulo or Rio de Janeiro, um, Para, and these uh, further away states.
0: So I guess this is a a bit more of a crisis for them when they can't take part in the in person classes if they don't have access to the computer or to the internet
1: yeah it creates a a really difficult situation because uh, we don't want to to leave them without any archaeological without any contact with archaeology Um, and at the same time uh, we don't have the infrastructure the social or economic infrastructure to 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 make it possible uh, because you can't uh, use your cell phone uh, to graduate or to undergraduate, it's not possible. Um, So really, uh, uh, the pandemic creates a situation, a a global situation that has uh, a lot more of catastrophic consequences uh, here. I guess
0: that for a topic that's that's very hands-on, there's also the difficulty, aside from whether or not they can do the, the lectures online, that it would be very difficult to do the practical class if you wanted to do the laboratory, if you wanted to do a field school. Yeah, yeah. This is also a problem.
1: Yeah, and it's, just, it's an archaeological problem. Uh, you can't uh, be an archaeologist or call yourself an archaeologist if you don't dig anything or, or if you didn't learn how to dig anything so uh it's a really practical thing um, and lockdown uh, prohibit anything of the sort so uh, we have to um, create new solutions new ways to put these uh, practical activities for later at a time where it will be possible when it will be possible And for now, we have to find solutions that are uh, acceptable for both for both professors and students, mostly students. Uh, That is, we have to create a way to make it it accessible to to all of our students. We can't just uh, pick some uh, richest students and allow them to, to continue and just say to the poorest, uh, well, you can't access the internet, so you won't be an archaeologist. It's really difficult.
0: I guess it's a continuation of a, the general problem of people who who are economically challenged to, yep. to actually go into the university, you know, from a very early stages of the preparing the exams to get accepted, those who who are more disadvantaged may not have access to good school to prepare them or exactly.
1: preparing for the exams. I, I Exactly. I don't think the pandemics create anything new. Uh, it just makes it uh, stronger and clearer. Uh, but we know that some of our students uh, wouldn't be studying anything, wear it for, wearing it for, for, uh, bursaries, uh, bursaries that are like, uh, less than, uh, less than a hundred dollars. Um, uh, that is, uh, fundamental for them to stay at the university. Um, so, um, we, Deal with poverty um, they deal with poverty every day, and we have to find uh, solutions to allow them to 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 change their situation to help them to change the situation uh true archaeology it's a big problem and uh, uh, there could be um uh, Tens of thousands of podcasts about that.
0: <laughs> well, it's a general problem, I think, of education that people may think, well, the university's free or very cheap, mm-hmm. but the, the cost of tuition is just a small part of it. There's also the cost of living for for three or four years while you're studying. There's also the loss of income if you have to contribute to your family's income, whether it's your spouse and children, or it could even be children are supporting the family, even though they're kind of young, they they may be economically contributing to the income of their family. So taking three to four years off, it's hurting the family in that way. So they may not be able to, even though university might be free, Mm-hmm. And they may have enough, even if they get enough of a scholarship to live off of, there's these others. And just to get in, um, I think that if you if you have more money, or if your family does, you may be able to give your children access to a better private school or a tutor to prepare them for the entrance exams. Whereas if not, you're just going with what you can Learn on your own, and some people will do that. You know, they're they're very talented, mm-hmm. but it's not, they're not entering. They're they're disadvantaged even yes. before the university starts, and I think that it has a carry-on problem. That if only the wealthy have the opportunity to provide their children with a good education or qualifications that will look good on their on their on their CV then that's going to make another generation so those people will then grow up and then be able to provide to their children and it's just a cycle that keeps on going so
1: yeah vicious cycle. Uh, i
0: mean it's not limited to archaeology
1: mm-hmm. no 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 of course it's uh, the same for 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 the whole university and for the whole economy in fact uh but we are part of part of it uh, so we can't just shut our our eyes and say, "Oh no, I'm an archaeologist. I don't do anything like that." Uh, we do, and as professors, uh, we also contribute to reproduce uh, to reproduce it, even if not consciously. I mean, uh, it's easier to to note uh, to grade a, a student that's been showing you that he's been reading and uh, thinking about uh, archaeological theory and things like that and we have to remember that okay it's great but it's not everyone that has access to all these things and how can we judge uh, two different students on the base of their access and not of on the basis of their ability or, or studyingness. <laughs> um, and and for that matter, uh, Brazil is uh uh really dramatic, it's tragic here because we we uh we see the situation occurring uh um, in front of our eyes um we see that it creates anxiety in many students. Uh, we have students burning out, uh, something like 19 or 20 years old. Uh, it's really early to burn out. And we, we see that happen and we know why. Because as you said, they have to contribute to the family. They have to send back part of the bursary uh, to help the family or oh, there, there are problems, uh, the house that is two or three hundred kilometres away, uh, that creates that creates a lot of anxiety.
0: I think another problem that we're dealing with right now with the online learning, and I think this depends on the university, but uh, a lot of times if you're off campus, then you may not have access to, well, you definitely don't have access to the physical library, but you may not also have access to a lot of the digital libraries either. I know that, like for example, if I'm at home right now, I can't access all the subscriptions that the university has subscribed to. Mm-hmm. If, if I was at the university, whether it's even on Wi-Fi or plugged into a computer mm-hmm. somewhere, then you have access to all these. But uh, I think that some of the universities have an ability for students to from home to access the university's network and then from there to get these materials. But it's a bit of a problem of of commercial publishing that you're limiting who gets it. The universities get it, research labs get it. The average person doesn't.
1: Absolutely. Uh, And that creates uh, problems that are filled out with... um, solution like Sci-Hub or piracy or real piracy and things like that. So, but it's created by the structure. Uh, um, would it be access or easier access uh, through the university, but remotely, uh, there wouldn't be any need for uh, uh, to, 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 to find other the sources of, of, of knowledge. Um, So it's another vicious circle, um, because at the the same time, um, alternative sources are harder to find. So you need a little bit more uh, knowledge of how computers and internet works. That means that not necessarily everybody has. Um, So we're always uh, rounding the same problem that people don't have access to things. And if you don't have access to things, you can't change uh, or it's really uh, harder to change.
0: I was reading that Brazil has one of the highest, I don't know if it's per capita or if it's just in general, uh, one of the highest numbers of open access journals throughout the world. Uh, if you look at the statistics for the open journal system, which is one of the main platforms mm-hmm. that, uh, that open access journals use, because it's also a, it's a, it's an open source software, you, there's a huge density of open access journals in Brazil. It's one of the top countries for producing them. But I thought it was very good. Uh, I think a lot of the universities in Brazil have uh, a platform for if the departments or associations within the university want to start an open access journal. And I think that's a really that's a great development.
1: Yes, it is. Uh, uh, It's amazing because this morning I found out that uh, uh, a journal of open archaeology data um, that seems really interesting, and one of the conditions for subscription or to send an article is that you have to make your data available and uh, i think uh, for for archaeology as a matter we still have here in brazil uh, a tradition of keeping our data uh, closed Uh, that is we may be producing publishing a lot but the uh, primary data is uh, mostly kept uh, away from other researchers. Um, and I believe that we have to change that. We have to create a culture of opening data. Uh, think about these scenes I've been talking about that we find in three separate states. That is the Serra de Capivara the Chapada de Mantina and the Cerida region that are three areas studied by different uh, groups and we now have a phenomenon that is uh, crossing these areas and crossing these groups that means that we cannot study it if we don't have access to all three uh, data packages Uh, so it turns really necessary to uh, create some kind of database for archaeological data in, in, in Brazil so that we can access information from other regions and we can start to think about uh, past occupations in the country, not just like a tiny cells separated one from the others, but as societies of individuals, uh, real societies uh, interacting Uh, one with another.
0: I think a lot of journals now, when you do the peer review, there's even a question on the peer review form. Has the data from this study been made available in the article or elsewhere? So when the people are reviewing articles, it's one of the things you actually check, yes or no. And I think that's, that's important. Because although archaeology is not always reproducible it should be as much as possible I mean you can't re-excavate a site but if the data that you used and that I use and someone else used is available someone can read the article look at the data and see whether it was actually you know, they could try to re-verify and see if it was actually done well or if there was an error made somewhere they can combine it with data from another area
1: yes and, uh, we have, a, a multidisciplinary, uh, multidisciplinary, work. So, uh, I can't assume that, ah, the excavation has produced all the information it could produce. Uh, I mean, uh, uh let's say I can't use computers. How could I state that, uh, uh, this spatial ana- analysis has been made? Um, so we need to open our work for other people to study the same thing in a different way. Um, that's, to my opinion, the the the, the main idea of archaeology. Uh, that we need more people. We need different people. We need different minds, uh, if we want to understand. Uh, this whole thing.
0: I think that that's something that ties in also with getting a more diverse range of people in not only archaeology but similar types of social science is that people from different backgrounds whether it's a different culture or whether it's a different economic group they will have a different perspective on things and for that reason it's very important to encourage different people to come into archaeology because if we're just getting one group of people that's very similar, uh-huh. then you're going to get very similar interpretations. But if you have people with different backgrounds, just just a different life experiences, then there'll be more people that may take a look at something
1: from a different point of view. Yep. Yeah. Yes. Um, from a, a Brazilian point of view. Uh we know that uh, that as we we've been talking about uh, access to university is um, still complicated uh, it's changing of course for for the last 10 years there uh, have been uh, how do you call that positive um um quotas um, how you say that in english affirmative action affirmative action uh for for the last 10 years yeah, where uh, you have
0: we have quotas for specific groups of people yeah. uh, to encourage them to study different subjects
1: yeah there have been these policies uh, set up that are really great not just on a, on a, a historical point of view but uh, as you said uh, they also allow people with other backgrounds to come into university, come into archaeology and uh uh look at our data with a different site. Um let's just think about how we don't we don't have indigenous people in archaeology or so so few. Um let's just think about how they may look are the material what would they produce as knowledge uh, not just for their own communities for not just for indigenous communities but for the whole human community uh, because they come they would come to university with completely different background
0: at the archaeology department at your university, are there many indigenous students?
1: uh that are stating themselves as indigenous uh no uh no we don't i wasn't sure because in i
0: know in the north particularly in in the more central the western part when you get into the amazonas area there's a higher population of indigenous people as opposed to if you're on the coastal area
1: yeah, uh, uh, there are some people that you can recognize some 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 uh, um, physiognomics uh, of indigenous people, but uh, uh, they do not uh, call themselves indigenous, so uh, we can't call them indigenous either. And even even uh, even in the West, even in Pará and Maranhão. Uh, where the proportion of indigenous people is, is higher, uh, I'm not sure access to university and archaeology in particular uh, is really uh, easier for them. I'm afraid it's not. I see.
0: What are you working on at the moment?
1: Well, I'm I'm doing a lot of spatial analysis. Um, uh mostly using teaching and using gis um lately uh we have a, a research project in the region of the serra das confusões uh at least in the south of the state of Piauí, um and we've been trying to to model um movement uh into the the, the, the area um and we've been trying to 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 use new variables to shape how movement could take place. Um, Because uh, generally speaking, uh, movement analysis has always been using uh, slope um, and elevation data uh, for calculating the the, the cost of moving, Um, but in a semi-arid context, as the des confusões, uh, as we've been prospecting and walking a lot in the region, uh, we can see that uh, slope is not the most important thing you have to look. Um, because, of course, the, well, uh, uh, steep, steep slopes will always remain a steep slope. But, um, most important is how you manage heat, dryness and the sun. That are, uh, three important aspects that shape how you have to behave, um, and how you have to think about how you go from point A to point B and we have been trying to model that in GIS uh, it gives us quite satisfactory results Uh, at least we have no been modeling movement that um, put importance on shadowing on how uh, one would Prefer to travel by the shadows, uh, the foot of the cliffs, uh, uh, and things like that, and not in the in an open area uh, where you just burn out. Um, and that is interesting because most of our archaeological sites are located along the cliffs. So we have now been modeling um how movement, uh how moving behaviors uh makes you walk on the places where we find uh remains. That is interesting because it turns our archaeological sites not as um distant or, or Peripheral places, but really, are central places I mean uh, places that were uh, walked uh, by people.
0: So how are you generating this new data to to find out where are the shadows, where are the the drier or wetter areas, which which areas have more or less access to the sun?
1: Uh, we've been using true GIS. Uh, you can. Model hill shading. And, um, we have been also using, um, uh, algorithm that, uh, um, gives you the position of the, of the sun at specific times, date and sti- date and time. Uh, so we've been modeling a few dates, uh, past dates with these uh configuration will be modeling uh hill shading and uh we've been using hill shading as a cost uh, uh as a cost layer um so it's still not uh it's still uh, in development um uh, but for the moment uh it gives us interesting result maybe not as uh specific answers for 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 everything, but uh, at least clues, or or pointing to things to think about, Um, and that are really, well, you may say, uh, 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 when you've been uh, walking in semi-arid regions, you just say, well, of course, it's important. Of course, you have to think about the sun and where it goes and how long you will be walking, uh, uh under it. So it makes perfect sense to use, uh, hillshade data. Um, uh, you no, know, the things that the thing is, uh, how you, we make the calculation, we have to take, uh, uh, much caution uh, how we make it usable or we make it uh, calculable in the model but basically it's hill shading and
0: after you do that you're going back into the field to to see whether there is more sites or less sites in the areas that you're predicting are advantages
1: yes uh, uh i wouldn't call it prediction uh it doesn't Tells us, uh, uh, specifically where to go, um, mainly because of the, 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 the environment, environmental configuration. We already know where, where the shadows are. So we just have to walk the whole cliff, uh, 20 or 30 kilometers long. Um, the, 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 the the interesting thing is more about uh, rethinking behaviors and uh, walking behaviors that we have as uh, modern human beings, uh, that we know that we can carry gallons of water, just put, in, put them in the trunk. Um, but we have to start thinking as people that cannot, that don't have cars, uh, that cannot carry a lot of water. So you have to adapt your behaviors to keep your water, and that's the level where uh, the model is interesting uh, because it makes sense uh, and it makes us think, rethink uh, how we've been uh, looking at these the sites.
0: What are some of the roles that you think computers will play in archaeology in the future? Many
1: <laughs> uh, many um, well things that
0: we don't use them for now, but we might use them for in the future
1: I think that the, the, the probably away from analysis uh, crude analysis, crude remain analysis uh, one of the aspects computers are bringing to us is uh social interaction. That is, uh, it makes us able to share, um, the knowledge we produce while digging, while studying, uh, past societies. Uh, it makes it available more directly for the society, uh, the actual society. Um, think about how Uh, They are working at Sataloyuk in Turkey, and how every step of every day of excavation is translated through computers to the population. And how uh, all these data are shared and put for public use. Um so it's not just a matter of uh, analyzing and using computers or uh, in laboratories. It's also how to use computers or as social tools, uh for kind of social engineering. I think
0: it's also about this, how can we distribute it to the to the public and to our peers.
1: Yes. Yes, and we've been talking about access to information. Uh, um, I think we have, we need more access. Uh, everybody needs more access, not content, not amount of information, but access to information. Uh, the content and the amount is more of personal choice, uh, but at least the access we have to guarantee.
0: I think that one of the good things now about computers and the internet is how we can actually distribute the information to the public. I think that 30 years ago there was academic journals which was a print format and there were some archaeology magazines or history magazines for the public. Occasionally something might appear in a newspaper on the television news or on a documentary, but I think that now with as the internet is becoming more and more common for everyone to to have access to it in some way, it's easier to disseminate stuff that's not that's for many different groups. It could be for academic groups, it could be for public groups it could be for adults or for children uh, it could be in different languages, but because we have things now like WordPress and YouTube, mm-hmm. it's very easy for us now or at least we have another means by which we can. Distribute yep. information, ideas, results from our research. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, and uh, it's not even just about general archaeology, like you would have articles about the Mayas or Roman Empire. Uh, but we now have the opportunity to create um, solutions for for us really specific matters uh, inside archaeology field. I mean uh, who could imagine uh, 10 or 20 years ago creating a a vehicle for I don't know forensic uh, American archaeology uh, or even spatial analysis. Where you would have a dedicated platform just for that matter, just for that area, just for that subject, which is inside archaeology. Uh, that is, uh, that very archeology uh, uh, itself is a specific matter of knowledge. And, uh, you would, you, you can create now, uh, platforms for specific matters inside that specific matter uh, so it's really uh, giving uh, us the opportunity to create more information create more knowledge but again the question is uh, who can access it and that's that's i think what we have to right. to, to, to to address uh, because uh, we can create 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 uh, it doesn't matter any of it matters if nobody nobody reads it.
0: Right. I guess this is where social media plays a large part, Yeah, where you can create groups of people from different areas or people can come together and it becomes like a, a collection of information. Yeah. yeah. Uh, for example, if you were on Facebook, I saw an article on the news. I put a link to it. Someone else saw an article, maybe in a completely other country, they put a link to it, and it's a sort of a self-generating product where it's not someone being paid to produce a project. It's just members of the public, members of the group, people who have an interest in something are just contributing things, and they all get collected together into one place.
1: I think it's a good resource. Yeah. yeah. I'm, and I'm sure we are we are we are still not using it properly. Uh, we are like uh, children using new tools, uh, new toys. Uh, I'm sure that in the next few years, uh, we maybe not we, but people will get a, a, a more a better use of these tools um and there will be new solutions and clever uh, clever solutions uh that we that have come out of, of all these um at least i hope that we can uh produce knowledge that be available from for, for for everyone that has interest into it
0: do you have any advice for young people who
1: are interested in becoming archaeologists well, that's a huge question. Uh, I think, uh, one of the most important aspects of our profession is, uh, is something of care, something of, uh, look, look at things, look at people, look at everything that is around us. Uh, because it is true that look that we can recognize, we can think, we can uh, argue about uh, past societies. If we don't look, if we can't see details, then what can we really say? Uh, so anything that make people, that make new, next generations of archaeologists uh, having more care in the way they look at things—that is positive. Now, how how do we do that? Uh, yeah, it's another question. I suppose it's reading, hearing, listening, uh, producing, creating. To uh, I don't really know how we create uh, more caring people but i'm sure it's the most important thing we have to do
0: other than learning about history and learning typical fieldwork skills what are some other skills that you think would be useful for archaeology students to
1: learn well uh, um, i think people have to learn nature if really it's- can be learned but uh, they have to learn to be into nature that is they have to learn to uh, understand how it works how it is a dynamic system uh, and how it changes and how we behave uh, into that system into the dynamics um, That means archaeology is not something you can learn on a stool, seated. You have to go on the field, uh, not just excavating on the field. You have to go uh, outside, you have to understand the outside, you have to see how it works. You have to uh, get under the rain, you have to know cold and you have to know dryness because it will make you able to understand these things and understand how it matters, because it matters. That's a really philosophical question, and I think I made a very philosophical (laughs) answer.
0: No, I think that there are different ways that people need to think. It's not always, here's the methodology, follow it from A to B to C. Uh-huh. I think there's often different ways that we can do it, and we may produce different interpretations based on how we do it so if everyone's doing it the same way, we're very likely to all come to the same conclusion, uh-huh. even though that may not be the only interpretation so it's I think it's good to look at these from different points of view, think about how what what should we be doing, how should we be doing it uh-huh. This has been a very interesting discussion. Uh, it was very informative, and it's provided a lot of ideas. Thanks for coming on to the show and talking with us today.
1: Thank you. It was really uh, a great pleasure. Might as well. Have a nice day. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Argue
0: Cafe podcast. For more information and news, check out our website or social media pages. Links can be found in the episode notes or simply by searching online for Cafe Podcast. If you have any questions or comments for the presenters or guest speakers, we'd love to hear from you. And remember, history depends on your point of view.